Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, November 25th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about the sixth episode of HBO's Watchmen entitled This Extraordinary Being. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writer Chris Evangelista. Hi, everyone. Chris, it's just you and me today. Uh, Jacob couldn't be here with us, but um, we're going to we're gonna dive into this episode. Actually, I just remembered, before we get into the meat of this conversation, you had a chance to speak with Damon Lindelof this week, uh, or I guess last week, about Watchmen. Why don't you tell people a little bit about that in case they didn't listen to the episode of this podcast on Friday? Uh, yes, yeah, so I um, I sent some questions over to uh, Damon Lindelof, uh, who, of course, is the creator of Watchmen and the executive producer and he writes almost all the episodes and he replied and I also found out that um Jeff Jensen who is another writer on the show also replied so they they sort of put their heads together for these answers um and I I asked them basically to tell me all about the Robert Redford administration because in the world of Watchmen Robert Redford is the president and 
to their credit, they took these questions, which are inherently silly, very seriously, and they gave me very serious answers. Um, I mean, they're, they're humorous answers, but they're played to be uh, serious. It's it's played straight. And I remember uh, like, a, like a few uh, – this must have been like a, maybe two weeks ago or something. You were just – you seemed racked by this idea of what the implications of Robert Redford's presidency means on the world of pop culture. Like does the movie Sneakers exist? And I feel like you spent like 30 minutes in our Slack channel just like pulling your hair out being like, wait, what does this mean? Like if Redford is president, did this movie happen? Does this person's career go the same way? And so you, you, you were somehow miraculously able to pose all these questions to so the people who actually – make the show and even more miraculously they had answers for you right and there are and these and since these come from you know the people who create the show these are all uh canonical these are all official answers um uh, we'll, we'll link to the piece i don't want to go into it too much is because they're they're actually very detailed more detailed than i was expecting <laughs> like for instance uh they provided a complete list of every um, every Robert Redford movie that he made in this world, who who took over for him in the Watchmen world? Because obviously, he, since he's president now, he's not making movies in that world. So those movies that he made in our world, they still exist, but they were made with different people. And um, they, except sadly, they, sne- oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, sadly, sneakers does not exist. And I actually didn't think of this when I asked the question, but. You know, sneakers is all about hacking, and the internet doesn't exist in the Watchmen world. So that's the one movie that actually doesn't exist in the right. Watchmen world. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And I think it, they also imply that, or maybe they just outright state that Redford like retained executive producer credit on a lot of these projects too. So like theoretically, he's in the White House and still maybe you know hooked into Hollywood in some way. So right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's really great. I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. So check that out if you've not read it yet. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, All right, let's dive into this episode, uh, spoilers and all. So um, before we talk about what we see, I thought it might be worth mentioning really quickly that the two plot lines that we don't see, we don't see Looking Glass, um, the previous episode basically leaves with a a cliffhanger, ends with a cliffhanger, and we don't have any idea of what happened to Looking Glass. And then we also don't get Adrian Veidt. This is the one episode, I think, of this entire season where he's just not going to appear at all. Um, Chris, did you miss either of those characters, uh, this week? Uh, no, I mean, as much as I, I love Tim Blake Nelson and as much as I love whatever it is Jeremy Irons is doing on this show, I, I do think this episode, if it had cut away to either of them, it would like, I, I feel like you maybe could have cut away to looking glass cause there are a few shots where they cut back to the police station. But if it had cut to Adrian, it would just take you like completely out of the the flow of the episode because uh, 98% of this episode is all flashback and to suddenly stop that and go to, you know, whatever Adrian is doing on the moon or wherever he is, yeah. would just be, we just like really throw like a wrench in the, in the, in the narrative. Um, so as you mentioned, most of this episode is flashback. It, it gives the definitive origin story of Hooded Justice, who is a character who appears in the graphic novel, but his identity was never confirmed. Uh, we've had a lot of speculation on our end about whether or not Hooded Justice is actually Will Reeves, and that was confirmed in this episode. Um, I don't necessarily think that's one of those questions where the reveal coming in episode six is meant to be mind-bending on its own, but I I do think that it's fascinating that they decided to devote an entire episode to 
really laying out that character's history and, and showing it, like every single step of the process of him becoming that hero. What did you think about uh, right. that reveal? Um, it's great. It's a great example of how you can retcon something while still remaining true to the source material. Um, you know, in, in the Watchmen comic, Hooded Justice is the one character, one superhero whose true identity was never revealed. And there, there are like theories that are mentioned in the comic, but no one knows for sure. And uh, Lindelof and, and company, they found this really smart way to, you know, give us an answer and not make it seem like cheap. Not You know, a lot of times when we get, you know, a lot of times when prequels are involved, this is, you know, for lack of a better term, this episode is sort of like a prequel. Yeah, you often get answers to questions you were never really asking to begin with. It's like, I don't need to know those answers. I, I like, you know, to, to quote that Patton Oswalt stand up, I just like the things I like. I don't need an explanation. But this episode, it, it finds a way to make a prequel story tie into this new narrative they're telling. And it does it. And it feels very natural. It feels very organic. And it's also a great way to tie in, you know, the theme of this show, which is, you know, um, uh, racism in America and the African-American experience and all this stuff, you know, stuff that the comic didn't really deal with. Uh, the show is, is, is really tuned into that and it feels very natural. It doesn't feel like it was shoehorned in. It doesn't feel like, oh, we got to find a way to tie the comic into our show. It actually makes sense in the world of the, of the, this, you know, of Watchmen. And I, I love the way they sort of like thought of everything. Like, like, yeah. Oh, in the comic, you, you know, the hooded justice's eyes that we can see are, are clearly that of a white man's. And they, they, they cover that here by, you know, having Will Reeves paint his eyes, uh, you know, the, uh, a, a Caucasian color. So I just, I was really impressed with, even though I feel like everyone guessed this twist, like, <laughs> way too soon like everyone like I, I was in on it because i had seen the episodes and it kind of bummed me out that everyone figured it out really quickly i still think the way they they did reveal it played out really well and, and really satisfying yeah yeah for sure um you, you mentioned the eye thing and i think this might be a good point to i was speaking with dave chen a little bit about this last night um the idea that uh that will reeves takes on this superhero mantle and that Angela, his granddaughter, ends up taking on a superhero character of her own without even knowing that she's related to this guy. And there being so many similarities, like in their costumes, even, you know, she wears a hood, just like Hood of Justice has a, a hood. And she also spray paints her eyes, although she's spray painting her skin, her black skin black, while he's spray painting his black skin white, um, you know, just to to sort of, uh, I, I don't know, drawing the... the um, the direct line between those two characters. Uh, I thought this episode did a really great job of, of, you know, even though most of the episode is a flashback, um, making it relevant to the stuff that we know before. And obviously Angela is experiencing all of these memories uh, through this nostalgia, um, pharmaceutical technology, these pills that she's taken. So um, I just wanted to, to bring that up really quickly. Um, I am. Um, other thing I want to throw out there. I, I really love the way that this show sort of makes superheroes into like this whole big metaphor for like racism in general, because like, you know, in the world of Watchmen, at least the show superheroes really begin a as a result of like, it's a direct result 
of, of a racist to act. And, you know, Will Reeves, he gets uh, lynched, but he's, you know, they let him down. His, his cop friends let him down, not friends, his coworkers <laughs> let him down. Right. And, you know, he becomes a superhero after that. And then it's like the, the weird progression about how racism and, and uh, white supremacy sort of like corrupts and, and um, appropriates things for their own mean, because, you know, we've gone from the very first superhero in this world being a black man to the, the modern equivalent is the, you know, there, there's the, um, the seventh Calvary and they're, they're, you know, they've adopted, you know, Rorschach's thing where they're wearing masks and they're like full blown white supremacists. And it's like in the span of these decades, uh, it's been subverted and twisted into this, you know, uh, awful, <laughs> awful uh, alternate version of what it was originally set out to be. And I thought that was just like a very apt metaphor for how just white supremacy sort of just tries to get in there and and corrupt everything. Yeah, it's this like foundational sin of our country. And and yeah, as you said, like sort of indirectly spawned this entire superhero movement within this world. And even like the um, Captain Metropolis, the character that we uh, meet in this episode, even the, the sort of not subtle, but uh, I guess lower key racism than some of the more overt acts we see in this episode, that that uh, Captain Metropolis, who is also one of these costume heroes, embodies. Basically, he's pointing out like even the Minutemen, this group of superhero characters who are supposed to be Will's brothers in arms, brothers and sisters in arms in this this ongoing mission. You know, even they won't accept him for who he really is. Captain Metropolis says you have to stay in your costume the whole time, basically, because we don't really, you know, I don't believe, I don't have enough faith in, in my fellow heroes that they're going to be able to accept you for who you are. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that that's what is so great about the show. You don't really see mainstream television tackling huge ideas like this and doing it in ways that are, um, I mean, again, like really overt, like they are in this episode, but also the subtleties to it too. It's it's um a, like they they're just putting a piece of string through the eye of a um what is that called? <laughs> One of those little uh, fish hook needle. <laughs> yeah, the eye of a needle. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's a they have a a very very small margin of error, and I feel like the show is just walking that tightrope perfectly. But um. So uh, we talked a little bit about Hooded Justice's origin story. We see that that plays out very, very differently in American Hero Story, the show within the show. Um, I Dave mentioned on our in our discussion last night that the grocery store set looks very, very similar to what we saw in uh, I think it was episode two of this show, the American Hero Story episode in there where Hooded Justice goes jumping in through the. Uh, through the front glass window and starts taking out all of these, you know, bad guys within this grocery store. And we see that same sort of set uh, in this episode, but it's inverted, right? Like he jumps out of the window to escape. And it, I think it, it speaks to what you were talking about just a second ago, like the idea of um, history being uh, written by the winners and, and sort of being distorted over time and uh, people of color being either erased altogether from it or um, their contributions being uh, either twisted or um, 
you know, downplayed significantly. So uh, I think that's some of that subtlety I'm talking about, where it's just like the show. Just it's so good, Chris. It's so good. How is it so <laughs> it's good? very good. Um, um yeah. <laughs> so uh, June, we see this character June, who is uh, Will Reeves's. Um, reporter girlfriend who i guess that's another way that this show just sort of uh draws the connection to the superman story it makes that like very overt in this episode right superman there's also a little batman too because he he hooded justice breaks up a big mugging in an alley which is of course how batman's parents were killed so yeah, yeah. i like i like those two very overt call i felt like a lot of people are saying this is the best episode and I kind of think last episode last week's was better just because I think as good as this episode is, this episode is great. I love the direction. I love the style. Um, I think it's a little too on the nose with a few, like some of the dialogue is really hammy. Like, uh, that June character is like the only way you're going to get justice. Will Reeves is if you wear a hood and it's like, all right, that's that for, that's a little too, too unsubtle for me. That's some of that prequelitis thing you're talking right. about. And they even have like Will Reeves reads the Superman origin comic, and then they have like they show uh, a quick flashback to the Tulsa thing, which is you know his origin story. And it's like, all right, we get it. You don't have to underline it that much. And I feel like those two de- like those little details are the only things that kept me from thinking this was the best episode. Even mm. though I do think this is like a groundbreaking episode of television. Uh, I think that says a lot about how good this show is that even something that this, that this groundbreaking isn't quite the best episode. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Um, so we find out that June who really serves as sort of a uh, hooded justices, Alfred in this episode, you're talking about the Batman connection too. Um, I, I thought it was pretty clear that she was meant to be sort of the Alfred figure in his life, like, you know, uh, encouraging him and, and sort of being there for him in his home environment. Um, we find out that she is the little girl that uh, very young will picked up in that field uh, outside of Tulsa. Was I the only one who's a little creeped out by the fact that they're romantically linked and, and she reveals that she's pregnant? Like this, I don't know. <laughs> what did you make of that reveal, Chris? Yeah, that whole, I don't know how I feel about that. For one thing, it's tossed off really like, it's it's almost like after the fact. It's like, oh, by the way, you were that baby in that field. And then for them to be in a relationship is is very weird because I'm guessing they like grew up together. And yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I, I'm assuming we're going to learn a little bit more about that because even though this, this episode gives us a ton of background on will, there's still a lot of stuff we don't know. Like for, for one reason, we don't really know why he's suddenly like targeting people in told like why he was targeting judd, you know, out of no, like all of a sudden after all these years. Mm-hmm. So there is, there are still like questions that have to be answered. And, I am wondering if we're going to learn more about uh, that character. Just And at the same time, it's clear that, that Will, I don't know. Like, all right. So do we want to talk about Will's sexuality? Cause I don't know how to like, how sure. we should address Like, so it's, you know, obviously I don't, I don't know if we're meant to, you know, imply what the relationship is between him and Jim. like, if he's just supposed to be bisexual, if he is sort of like, doesn't actually even know what he is because he ends up having, uh, I don't want to call it a romance cause it's clearly not romantic, but he ends up having a sexual relationship with, um, captain metropolis. So, uh, the show sort of does this 
it, I appreciated that it doesn't like label it. It doesn't like hammer at home what Will's sexuality is, but at the same time, it also is very gray. It's not like defined fully. I think. Yeah, I sort of took it as you know he's living this uh, double, like almost triple life in a time period where he's clearly not accepted, as I mentioned before, even by, you know, the, the sort of hero compatriots who are supposed to be standing by his side. And like the idea that, that he could um, explore his sexuality in an, in an open way uh, in, you know, 1930s New York just seemed too, <laughs> too out of reach, I think, for that character at that time. So uh, I'm glad that they didn't really go into that anymore. Cause it, it really, you sort of get all you need to know from it, I think in, in terms of like, I don't personally need to know, um, you know, how many other relationships he had with other people or, or any, even m- any more about his relationship with Captain Metropolis. I sort of like understood what the, the broad brush strokes that they were trying to make there. But um, yeah, it is interesting. Like it's such a, I think it, it's all about the time period, right? Like he, he couldn't, he just, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's a complicated thing to talk about, but I think, um, yeah, I think that's, that's probably where they landed was just like this idea that, uh, that he's wearing masks, uh, you know, it's, it's masks on masks on masks in this case. But um, yeah, so uh, let's talk about the the plan that he un- uncovers. So this this whole thing about beware the Cyclops. Right. Um, this, this is the other thing I have a little bit of a problem with. Oh, okay, so yeah, hit me with that. What do you got? So I, I know it sounds silly to say a show, you know, that's about superheroes is getting a little too unbelievable, but throwing in like a subplot about like the clan is hypnotizing people is it's almost too science fictiony am i am i like wrong did you buy that fully or so, i mean I, I don't know i have to say i thought that this was sort of perfectly watchmany like uh, you know the idea of like this being a show where a giant squid is telepathically you know transported into or or you know psychically uh it it has psychic damage powers basically right. and it's teleported into new york i thought it was kind of on that same level um i guess i could see the case where like you already have that so this plan separately is is maybe yeah taking it a step too far but because of the the way that the show has um uh, portrayed, uh, especially the topic of race already, I have to admit that there's a part of me that wondered if this was actually a real thing that the clan tried to do and, and maybe didn't succeed in doing, but because like it opens with the Tulsa massacre of 1921, which I'd never heard of before this show. And, um, in this very episode, there's a newspaper clipping that talks about how I think it's something like 20,000 people, uh, like Nazis, you know, have a, a rally at Madison Square Garden or something. And like that is actually a real thing that happens. So the show does this really good job of like weaving real world events, uh, even with Bass Reeves, like the the uh, movie star hero character that uh, inspires Will. He was like a real guy and I'd never heard of him, too. So there's part of me that wonders, like, is this a real, you know, clan uh, plot that they actually tried, and I just never heard of it before because uh, history is is often, you know, like we said, sort of uh, written by people who may not want this kind of information to be uh, publicized. I don't know. Um, what what did you think about that? You're you're on I, the on I the side. I actually like, had the same thought, although at the same time, it's like it's so far out that I can't be based on something that's like a hundred percent real. Yeah. But I'm sure they're drawing on. I mean, like. 
covert racism is like a real thing where it's, you know, racism that's like concealed in society and it's often concealed in such a way that it's almost subliminal. So it could be like a very literal way of interpreting that maybe, but uh, I'm not saying it didn't work. I just felt like it was so everything else in this episode felt really grounded. And then out of nowhere, it's like, by the way, the clan have a, a book about hypnotism and they're using it to hypnotize people. And it just, it, I don't think it fit entirely with the rest of the episode. I guess that's what I'm, I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, thought... time, I gotta, I gotta think that like this has to tie directly into whatever it is that lady true and will are up to like the yeah. millennial clock thing has to have some sort of hypnotism involved with it. Now that we know that will has, a super hypnotizing flashlight that he just carries around. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was thinking that too. And that's another way I think that the the episode sort of links these two time periods together. And I thought also like the the whole subliminal thing of, you know, this voice telling theater audiences that, you know, that like black people have to commit violence against each other and all of that. I thought that was um sort of a precursor to the psychic trauma that the the giant squid represents later on in the show too. So even if it that is never touched upon again which uh, like you know i i believe that there's got to be some sort of mention with that with the millennium clock but um i I thought it was a good way to sort of draw that line between the two and like the cyclops you know this this um i guess it's like a subgroup of the kkk uh this greek um mythological figure with one eye and also the the giant squid itself only had one eye too so right yeah there's that I couldn't figure out like if the Cyclops is the name of the group or if there's like an actual person. I couldn't like, I felt like that maybe I missed it or something. I, it, it, it sounded to me like there was actually a person they're referring to as the Cyclops, but I don't know. I think it's a group because you see that symbol that, um, that like one eye symbol that almost looks like a, uh, right. like a, what, what, what do you call that? Like a, a key or like a legend on a map, you know, like right. with the North, South, East and West. Um, and that and it, symbol was used in, I, I didn't recognize it because I'd never seen it before, but you see it very clearly in this episode. And then in some of the PDPedia material earlier, <clears throat> I was talking on, I think last week's episode about uh, a reader sent me a tweet saying like one of the letters that I think it was Judd Crawford's, um, or I'm sorry, uh, Senator Keene's ancestor had sent to Judd Crawford's ancestor was signed with this uh, ah, yes. clan thing, like, uh, you know, a Klansman I am or whatever the, the um, AKIA, I think, was the initials that they used. And that uh, Cyclops symbol was used as like a, a stamp right next to the signature on that. And I, it didn't mean anything to me when I read it because I hadn't seen this episode yet. But um, that strikes me as... Uh, all falling into line to represent that it's it's more of a group than a single person. But the only other, the only thing that makes me think it's a person is because like in the the actual KKK like the leader is is like the grand cyclops. That was the only thing I I was drawing. Oh, is that, that real? Is that what they yes. actually call him? Oh, I thought is, I always yeah. thought it was like a grand wizard. But uh... there there's like wizard. There's a I don't know. I have to brush up on my KKK <laughs> lingo, but I yeah. know there is there is a. Uh, a grand cyclops in the kkk interesting okay so that's even that is sort of building on and and sort of weaving real world material in in with this sort of uh almost quasi supernatural kind of stuff or sci-fi kind of stuff too 
Um, so, you know, we talked a lot about, on last week's episode, especially about uh, how the show is about passing down trauma to the next generation. We see the scene where Will's son dresses up like Hooded Justice and Will, like, freaks out about it. Um, what did you think about that, like, the seeing Will's home life and, and sort of the deterioration of that as he, you know, goes deeper and deeper into this Hooded Justice persona as the episode goes on? Yeah, I, I do love how this character is portrayed and just his progression because... Uh, they they even say early on, like uh, June says early on, and that he's like an angry guy. And it's like, yes, he does. He is sort of seeking justice in a way against, you know, racial injustice and justice in general. But he's also got issues. And I, I really love that the, the show continues with that gray area thing where there are no real, like, clear heroes or villains. And even though. I think, you know, all of Will's actions in this episode are justified to an extent. He still is going down this path where he goes from, you know, crime fighter to like full blown murderer. And I'm not saying, you know, oh, those poor Klansmen, like, go right. ahead. Will, Will Reeves, by all means, kill all the Klansmen in Watchmen. But it is, you know, the, the show does portray in a way where he's sort of like losing his soul in a process where he, you know, he starts off of this this righteous guy and he, you know, he joins the police force out of this sort of misplaced idea that he's going to do some good. And it just, you know, there, you know, the system itself like beats him down. He mm -hmm. realizes there is really no way to, there's no way to be that, that, um, Bass Reeves character, like that character, you know, June points out like that movie is, is so like, sugar-coated and so such bullshit that like there is really no way to be that noble hero that everyone loves in, mm -hmm. in the, the quote-unquote real world and uh, i think it dawns on him in that moment where he sees uh, his son dressing up in the costume and it leads to this whole blow-up thing where his wife leaves him and goes back to tulsa and all that yeah, and there's this this great shot too where he's standing in front of the warehouse as it's you know he's just murdered all these guys and he's burnt down the warehouse and it, it shows this quick flashback moment to um, outside of Tulsa when he was a little kid and and seeing the flames you know licking the city and and the smoke rising up from that too and it's just this really really fast moment but I think that's you know the show trying to say okay this this guy you know he he may be like um, on a um, sort of morally righteous path here but he also is is sort of losing himself as you mentioned he's sort of like going a little bit too far here so um i think it's just that complexity that this show like really loves to to use in, in almost every situation not just with its you know villains like adrian bite and his uh motivations for sending that squid in but also in the with the heroes too so um it's really great stuff so it's a good show that's what we're getting at <laughs> it is uh and and you know we, we talked about generational trauma one of the other big ideas that this show keeps returning to is this idea of legacy and in this episode we learn about will reeves's legacy in his origin story but we also get a glimpse into the legacy of the crawford family when judd is confronted about the kkk robe in his closet so do you think that that scene establishes that Judd was essentially a good guy with like a, a tarnished family history? Or do you think we still have more to learn about Judd's potential involvement with the clan in future episodes? Um, I really think it's just more of that, that gray area thing. I love the, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I love the, the, the line exchange between those two characters because, you know, Will is like, ah, oh, you have a clan robe hidden in your closet. 
And Judd is like, oh, well, uh, I have a right to keep it. It's part of my legacy. And Will says, like, well, if you're proud of your legacy, how can you hide it away? Mm -hmm. And I I think that's just a a great way of establishing the way that people – people who are racist and don't actually realize they're racist. Like, people who have – like, it's not – I don't want to say it's not their fault, but it's like if you grow up in a certain background, like – in a previous episode, Angela asked looking glass, like, ah, oh, did you know Crawford was a racist? And he says, well, he's a white man from Oklahoma. And it's like, that's not excusing his racism, but it's a way of saying like, that's the world he comes from. And yeah. like, I think that's, you know, I don't know what Judd's ultimate involvement was. I mean, he clearly has some association with the seven Calvary. Cause the, you know, Keen said so last week. So mm-hmm. he's not a good guy. If he's, he's lining up with, um, white supremacist but i think it's just more of that complicated thing i just i'd love that this show does not paint things in broad strokes it really wants you to stop and consider these characters like i can't think of another show dealing with this subject matter like superhero material even like i can't think of a movie that's like that tries this hard to make you consider multiple sort of angles from everyone's perspective. And yeah. it's such, I know we just keep joking and saying like, this show is good, but it's, it's such a good show. And <laughs> I can't get over how well done it is. Yeah. Um, the only other question I think I had was at the very end of the episode, when Angela is sort of coming out of her trance a little bit, was that an older version of June at the end? I, I think it's meant to be like, you know, we see, um, as Angela's memories and, and Will's memories are sort of converging on that spot at, at Judd's uh, hanging spot, basically. Um, you know, you start to see, like, drummers in the background. You start to see uh, Will's mother playing the piano, who's she's been sort of a constant presence throughout the this episode. Um, and then I think you see June essentially, like, um, materialize out of thin air and, and speak to Angela as if she's speaking to Will and saying, you know, all right, this is it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm taking the kid right. and, and and going back to Tulsa, like for all intents and purposes, we don't exist to you anymore. And then we see this older woman who basically leans in and she says, she does look like you. I'm going to take you home now, honey. And that's when Angela is sort of jerked back into uh, the present, I guess. Um, yeah. The idea of her saying she does look like you, like if this is June, which I think we're meant to believe it is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's her. Do you think she's talking to will like she's she's maybe standing next to will in like the in the present time and saying you know she does look like you like as if they've been speaking about angela and then um i mean i don't think i don't think it's a present time but i definitely think it implies that at some point will tracked her down in track june down in tulsa and they are probably talking about angela when she was like a baby i guess but i don't i don't because just the way they're talking, it sounds like they're talking about a baby. So. Yeah, I didn't think about that. She says, I'm going to take you home now, honey. So that that could very well be like from the hospital or something, too. So I, I did not uh, did not consider that. And I was just wondering if you thought that June, maybe like this older version of June, might also still be around and potentially involved in whatever Will is getting himself into. Or do you think that was like a like a mid flashback where she, you know, she's no longer in the picture. Yeah. I think, I think that was a mid flashback, but uh, I could be wrong. I actually just got 
the next two episodes. I I only had oh, the first six, so Chris, you I'm bastard. Gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna watch at least the next one probably tonight or tomorrow because I want to get my review in uh, before Thanksgiving because yeah. I don't want to work during Thanksgiving. <laughs> so so I, I hope I find out more. Awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the episode's aesthetic choices. Uh, you mentioned, I think, in the very beginning how you loved the look of it. And, you know, you've got most of this flashback taking place in black and white. You've got uh, a lot of specks of color mixed in there as well. Somebody tweeted to us um, basically saying that it might be a reference to uh, Spielberg's Pale Horse, like the the Schindler's List version of the, the movie that he made in this universe. Um, I, I think it's just a, a way to sort of uh, visualize the different time periods and stuff like you see that really great shot that that sort of took my breath away was when uh, will reeves is is walking his beat and uh the cop car pulls up next to him and the guys basically say hey you know come out for a drink they're sort of like bullying him into right. uh coming out with them and then the he says no thanks you know maybe another time and they drive away and you see the the bodies being dragged in color behind this black and white vehicle and it's just I thought the episode did such a great job of of really um, establishing the idea visually that this pain, this trauma that um, people live with never actually leaves them. Even the the ones that they didn't experience themselves in, um, you know, I guess young young Will did experience that himself. But uh, for Angela, you know, as the the um, experiencer <laughs> of of this nostalgia, um, to get that glimpse of like this is 1938 New York City, but she's seeing images from 1921 Tulsa, you know, blending together. Um, what did you think about the the episode's use of like uh, you know black and white photography and and like the steady cam where so much of it is like supposed to be one continuous shot all that stuff oh it's so good the 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 look of this episode is phenomenal um you know the way that there's always these like will's like um mother is like almost always in the background like playing the piano which i thought was such a cool like disturbing little touch and yeah like you said the the way that they not the whole episode but a lot of it is made to look like this sort of like one continuous flowing shot where the camera like the way you move to a next scene is the camera just gets up and moves you there. Like the, the scene doesn't cut. And I thought that was just really well done. I also love the way that they kept swapping um, Regina King in for, I forget the actor's name who plays the young will. Oh, uh, Jovan Adepo. Yes. They just keep cutting back and forth. And um, I was reading a little bit about this and it, it, it was shot. They sort of like did it almost like live where they were like, the minute the camera cut away, like Regina King would like rush into the shot and vice versa. Oh, wow. And, and they had to like practice that and get it down. And it, it looks like seamless. Like it, it never looks, you're, you're never like, ah, I, I spot the trick. It just looks like it's all very natural. And it's a, it's a great way of highlighting that even though this episode is a flashback, it is sort of like a dream too, because she's hallucinating all of this. And it has that really, dreamlike quality where everything doesn't everything seems like not quite real even though it is and i, I just love the the, the 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 aesthetic of that yeah um there's one thing that uh, and i'm sorry to keep referencing this conversation that i had with dave chen last night but i'll, I'll link to that in the show notes if people are interested in, in watching it but one thing that he pointed out that i didn't really think about uh, is the um the idea of the slow-mo so we see like american heroes uh, american hero story within the confines of the show we've talked about how you know it might be lindelof and his crew either 
uh, paying homage to or making fun of Zack Snyder's take on Watchmen. You know, you have very like speed ramping and all the sort of Snyder-esque um, uh, visual hallmarks in the way that that show within the show is depicted. But this episode, uh, that moment I mentioned before where um, Hooded Justice jumps out of the window to escape, the whole thing freezes and the camera sort of moves around like a Matrix style. And I was just wondering if you thought that by the real show um, uh, taking that same visual aesthetic from American Hero Story, if that was in some way Lindelof and his team maybe um, trying to soften the blow a little bit on people who were, uh, not that they're reacting in real time to what people are saying, but... um, to soften the perception that maybe they were just uh, mercilessly dunking on Zack Snyder. Uh, what did you think about that? Yeah, I don't, um, I mean, that shot in particular is almost identical to the, the Watchmen movie opening credits where there's like that, everything like freezes and the camera moves around. And so I feel like it, it, it has to be some sort of reference to that whether or not it's dunking or not, I don't know because I think Lindelof gets along with Zack Snyder. I don't. I don't know what their relationship is. I mean, I know he tweet. He was one of the people tweeting about the Snyder cut, so he clearly has some sort of relationship with Zack Snyder. But uh, whether it's dunking or not, I, I don't know. I do think it's impossible to like divorce that style from Zack Snyder because that's just what his his style is. So, yeah, and especially uh, within the world of Watchmen, like he's the right. only other person who's directed a live action Watchmen property, so it's it's sort of impossible to ignore. Maybe they're gonna do like some really super meta thing in the last episode where they reveal the Watchmen movie exists in this world and it was directed by Zack Snyder. <laughs> wow, that would be incredible. Uh, okay, so let's get to Theory Corner before we wrap up. Uh, this is just the part of the show where we talk about either random theories that we've had or, or um, in this case, uh, one that I wanted to read from an, uh, an email. Somebody, uh, Dave from Woodstock, Connecticut, sent us an email and said, uh, hey guys, I just finished the most recent Slash on Daily episode about uh, Watchmen. It was discussed how Adrian Veidt finally escaped his Jovian prison on one of the moons of Jupiter. Europa, he says, with a question mark, which, uh, sidebar, I think uh, I listened to an episode with, um, or a, a podcast with Damon Lindelof, and he confirmed that it was Europa where Adrian Veidt was uh, imprisoned. Uh, so back to Dave's email, he said, it made me think it, tw- it takes 12 Earth years for Jupiter to orbit the sun. Does that mean by last candle count, Veidt has been up there for at least 36 years or does time measure differently inside Veidt's prison bubble if so does this provide a clue to the manipulation of time by the future millennium clock um thanks dave so uh what do you make of that chris do you think that the the fact that um jupiter's moon takes longer to orbit the sun has anything to do with the way that time has been playing out in the adrian Veidt storyline i mean i hadn't even thought of that i mean it could be but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry that we don't have a, a more, <laughs> a better answer for you, Dave, but that is a fascinating thing. And I, I guess there's no way to really know until we see more of the, of the show, but um, let's see what else. Uh, okay. So we talked a little bit about the millennium clock. So with the, uh, the reveal at the end of this episode that um, old will still has, has been able to sort of, um, I guess I, I don't know if the implication is that he's the one who has has been perfecting this mesmerism technology, where he's he was able to convince Judd to hang himself, or if he just 
I don't know if the Seventh Cavalry has that technology or what, but what do you think? How do you think that might play into Lady True's plan with the Millennium Clock? Do you have any theories on that, Chris? I don't. I I don't know how it's going to play out. I do think whatever that hypnotism thing is is going to tie directly into the clock, and I do think it's it's something about like waking people up to the truth about you know the squid attack, and but I don't know why Lady True would be interested in that. So I can't really figure out how that ties into, and I can't figure out how it ties into Senator Keene's thing either. I, I guess we need to know if Senator Keene and the 7th Cavalry is working with Lady True, but I, I feel like that can't be because she's also working with Will, unless she's working with both of them and playing them against each other. Mm. I, I don't know where that connection is, but, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if she might use that same technology to try to broadcast something to the entire world, because I, I think, you know, one of the things that um, that the uh, Beware the Cyclops plot gets at is this idea that, like, media is used to, um, I don't know, like, almost like... Brainwash to, people? Yeah, and, and to simplify it incredibly, uh, to sort of keep black people down, you know? Like, the, the idea that, um, that they are putting information out there uh, subliminally in this case, but I think... The, a case could be made that this is a commentary on the, a larger state of you know media as a whole is right. um, is releasing imagery out there for the world to consume where that that it just uh, perpetuates stereotypes or you know insert any number of things there to um, to sort of keep things operating at a status quo and I wonder if that is a hint of something to come with the Millennium Clock and and how that technology that that sort of mesmerism technology may be used and and the idea of like broadcasting to the world um maybe to flip that idea on its head maybe like you're saying to, to sort of spread the truth to everybody i wonder if the millennium clock itself if that if that location of where exactly that was built is like a strategic location where um she might be able to use a bigger version of that technology to I don't know, like cloak the entire planet in, <laughs> in like some sort of broadcast or something. I was reading the the uh, Pedipedia, uh entry this morning, and um, there's a Tulsa newspaper article that says that Lady True sent newly legalized HDTVs to every residence in the Tri-County area as an apology for any inconvenience our construction efforts may cause, as well as the occasional atmospheric disruption. Oh. Um, and that was that was right around the time. That, I think the, the article was dated 2018, and we're in, like, 2019 now. But the idea of atmospheric disruptions stood out to me as, like, oh, could that be the, the height of the Millennium Clock? You know, maybe that has something to do with... Uh, broadcasting into the atmosphere and, and being able to draw people's attention skyward. I don't know. Um, it also says that uh, Bian, who I think we we know is Lady True's daughter, it says that Lady True's mother is also named Bian. So I don't know if that means that this is literally the same person. I think there was some speculation about that online. Like maybe this this girl that we think is the daughter is actually either a clone of her mother or an age reversed version of her actual mother or something like that. Um, mm. it, it also references the theory that the clock is a time machine, which we've talked about before. Um, when the reporter for that in world newspaper posed that question to a, a true industry spokeswoman, she responded, you have an incredible imagination. Your theory is most entertaining, but I hope you won't be dis disappointed when it doesn't come true. Sometimes a clock is just a clock, you know, uh, so I, I definitely think it's more than just a clock, but I, I wonder if the idea of, um, 
you know, this theory, I hope you won't be disappointed when it doesn't come true, is a way of, for Lindelof and his his people to uh, be, like, gently letting us down. Because I, I think that's a, that's a big thing with, like, fan culture, right? Is, like, when people latch onto theories and they end up not being true. I think that's where a lot of um, the discontent comes with with people reacting to like major blockbusters and stuff. They've been, you know, scouring Reddit threads for so long that they've just been, you know, hooked into these ideas that they found early. And then when the movie actually is trying to tell its own story, um, people get really mad about that. So I wonder if this is uh, Lindelof and his people sort of, um, yeah, just trying to let people down gently in advance when, when we, you know, uh, their disappointment uh, manifests when it's not actually a time machine. But um, what do you make of all that, Chris? Yeah, I think that is is spot on. Um, even though, you know, I myself had theorized maybe there's time travel involved, I would not be surprised if that's them literally like winking at us and saying <laughs> it's not that don't yeah what do you think about the atmospheric disruption and the the idea of like broadcasting something to the world from the millennium tower as like the the hub of that broadcast i do think that sounds about right although that is also the plot of batman returns with the riddler <laughs> I, or batman forever sorry the riddler does that so oh, yeah. i don't know if they're deliberately ripping off batman forever or what but <laughs> Oh, man, that's great. Well, I, I can't think of a better place to end this episode than with a, a Batman Forever <laughs> reference. So uh, Maybe we'll let uh, Seal's Kiss by a Rose play us out on today's episode. But, mm. um, uh, okay, before we go, let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Chris, where can people find your stuff? Slashfilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 You can find me writing at Slashfilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about Watchmen at Slashfilm.com. I'm going to link to a bunch of things in the show notes, including uh, Monique Jones has been writing, um, uh, I guess, a, a sort of a Watchmen column for us, like a couple days after the episodes air. So if... Uh, you know, if you watched last night's episode and were slightly disappointed that two white guys were talking about it on a podcast, you can at least have one more perspective, a perspective from a person of color um, on SlashFilm.com. So definitely read all those articles that I'll link to in the show notes there. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns, and Watchmen theories to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It helps us out a ton. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah.